Let's take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Can you appreciate something without understanding it? That's possible, right? In fact, my guess is there are numerous examples of this in our lives. There are all kinds of things we appreciate that perhaps we do not ourselves understand. And by understand, meaning perhaps could not replicate it. I'll give you an example about me. I appreciate anyone who can fix stuff. Is there anyone else in here like me? Before You shouldn't have raised your hand so quick, all right? Now we're dropping the other shoe, as they say, because I cannot fix anything. I mean, I can break it. I can break a lot of things, right? I can break it on purpose. Like, if it's not working, then my solution is throw it, bang it, kick it, right? Whatever. Okay, whatever. And that's one option. I can break things unintentionally, meaning I step on them, I drop them. All right, so I've got that skill set. If it is indeed a skill set, I've nailed that one. It's the fixing. It's not, not really in my wheelhouse. I appreciate anybody who can do that, who can fix like household stuff, appliances. I had a situation several years ago on a Thanksgiving day where my oven, we turned it on to preheat and it just kept heating and heating and heating and it never stopped. It just kept going and going and going, like constant heating. The thing never went off until you turned it off, right? That was the only way to get this thing to stop. And gratefully, we got somebody in our church, I won't mention his name, but he's, he thinks there's an important football game today. All right, who was able to... Not, probably not even in here right now, who's able to fix it. Appreciate you car guys. You guys rule the world. You car guys and computer guys and girls, all right, sorry, I don't want to be offensive, all right, you all rule the world. You can fix stuff that just is befuddling. So we can appreciate something and not understand. However, what happens when we gain a bit of understanding about that thing? We can develop a greater appreciation for it, right? In other words, if we see maybe the mechanics of how this works, not necessarily that I could replicate it, but when I see, wow, this is what you do and that happened and you got to get in there and fix this little thing and take this apart and put it back together and clean that thing and this is how you got to connect this doodad with that doohickey and those are official terms, right? You gotta, this is how you got to do this in order to make this thing work. 
I can look at that and think, never in a million years can I do that. But wow, do I have an even greater appreciation now that I have some understanding. So I can appreciate and not understand. I can understand and perhaps have an even greater sense of appreciation. But there's a third option. Can I understand something to such a degree that I fail to appreciate it? Well, absolutely. In fact, we have a cliche that we use that expresses this kind of sentiment. We will say familiarity breeds contempt. It's an old saying that goes way back that says when when we become, again, too familiar with something, when we develop such an understanding of something, when we become too comfortable with it, it is possible that we can take it for granted No longer appreciate it like we should. So really there is a sweet spot here, right? There is the sweet spot between appreciating and understanding where I want understanding to enhance my appreciation, but I don't want that to create a sense of coldness. What does this have to do with what we're talking about? Well, I think that's Romans 11. In fact, really, I think this is a, this is a, a helpful way to think about what we've been doing in the entirety of the book of Romans. I mean, Romans is a thick book. It's a weighty book, right? It's profound. It deals with all kinds of ideas, some of which maybe you've had lingering questions about. Maybe you didn't even know you should have questions about, but develop them after we talked about it. In other words, there was something there where you'd say, you know what, I've always appreciated the gospel, but quite frankly, there's some features I haven't understood. And perhaps after a series of time, you know, going through the book of Romans and, and defining the gospel, then 9 through 11, trying our best to walk through these grand, mysterious ideas of election and, and, and hardening and grace and mercy and sovereignty and free will. Again, expanding our understanding and we hope and pray our appreciation for the gospel. Because what inevitably happens in a study like this is we end up talking about familiar themes. It's not my fault, it's what Romans does. We talk about stuff, talk about other things, then come back and talk about that stuff again. And when we get to Romans 11, I think we find a great example of somebody doing theology right in this sweet spot of appreciation and understanding, of helping us to see some of the greater depth and mystery of God's work in the gospel, while at the same time remaining passionate and zealous for the truth of the gospel. I mean, really, you kind of have to think of it this way, because what Paul is doing in Romans 11 may not immediately seem to be something we would necessarily appreciate, or at least something that has day-to-day bearing on our lives. I mean, Paul is talking about what's God doing with the Jews. That's been a big part of 9 through 11. And, and in particular, working out of chapter 10, you know, where, where Paul said the gospel's been made known to God's people, to the Jews, yet the lion's share have rejected it. They've ignored it. They've disobeyed it. It's not for a lack of knowledge or potential to understand. They just said no to it. And so chapter 11 begins with a natural question. Does this mean God's done with Israel? 
So in the midst of this teaching, what Paul does for us is he again grants us, I think, a profound sense of understanding and appreciation for the greater work of God and his gospel. Going all the way back to Romans chapter 1 and the fundamental principle that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, Romans 11 continues to flesh that out. How is it? That the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. Given so many of the first audience of the gospel turned their back on it. So this is what we've been looking at. It's been a couple of weeks now that we've been in Romans chapter 11, seeing that though Paul's focus here is on God's work with Israel, it expands beyond that. That that, that in in many ways, this is a text that reminds us that we can trust the power of of the gospel to save, and that you and I should continue to think carefully about the nature of our understanding of the gospel and appreciation for it. And so there's two main ideas in Romans 11. We've already looked at one. If we go on to the next slide, Paul describes God's current work of grace, and that was verses 1 through 10. What God was currently at work doing, he asked the question, has God cast away, gotten rid of, given the boot to Israel? His answer was no. His answer then was to say, of course not. I'm saved. Lots of people are getting saved. Jews are getting saved. It is happening. Now, it's no longer the flood that was happening. It's a bit of a trickle, all right? It's no longer this vast response that we had, say, at Pentecost. But nonetheless, there are Jews being saved. However, Paul does remind us, and this is what we looked at last week, still the vast majority remains hardened to the gospel. They're blind. There's a stupor about them is the language that he uses. They've stumbled over this. They've pulled up to a table as if everything is fine and they're provided for and all is good. But in fact, now this is the very thing they will stumble over. And so this leads Paul, I think, to the second feature of the text beginning in verse 11. If you want to take notes, there's going to be some blanks to fill in. And that is God's future work of grace. God's future work of grace. Really what Paul is going to do, and we know, you know, as we read just a few verses of this, but it's really 11 through 32. In other words, almost the rest of the chapter. Paul Paul points us to kind of what, what God is going to do with Israel, and yet at the same time, he is talking about what God is yet still doing with the work of grace. So, though I've labeled this as God's future work of grace, because I do think this is the climactic point. Paul gets to the end of this thing. He gives a prophetic statement here, uh, something that's aligned with other prophecies in the New Testament about what God will do with Israel. And I think in the midst of this, though, in the midst of verses 11 through 32, Paul really continues to help us develop what, what I would argue is a profound understanding of the gospel. Now, verse 11 flows naturally from the previous. If you notice again, back up in verse 9. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So notice that language of stumbling. Because he picks up on it in verse 11 and asks another question. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, he's asking the question, have they then stumbled to the point where now they are 
they are irrecoverable. That's what he means by falling. Have they gone to such a point that now they are a lost cause? There's no longer an option of grace for them. The hardening is so full and so complete. Is, Is it possible that now we understand, Paul, what you've already said? God's not given up on them. God's not cast them out. But have they cast themselves out? Have they so resisted the gospel? And is this hardening of God definitive? Is this it for them? Does this mean that they don't have any other shot? And again, what he means here, he's speaking of Israel kind of as a nation, not necessarily just those alive at the time. I mean, this is, this is thinking broadly, as broadly as possible. Does this mean now that we'll We'll no longer see any more. I mean, yeah, Paul, we know you got saved. We know there are people at Pentecost. And maybe there's a trickle here and there, a little drip and drop. But, but I mean, does this largely mean we're done here? Now, now God's work is all about the Gentiles. Notice how he answers. Certainly not. It's pretty definitive. He's used this phrase before. It's emphatic. It's the strongest way to negate something in Paul's language. Absolutely no way. They are not beyond hope. It's an interesting phrase when Paul says, in essence, have they stumbled to the point they should fall away? Yes, they've been hardened, but Paul's suggestion here then is this hardening is not the last word. So here's what Paul is going to do. I think Paul is now going to develop in this final section two themes. One we'll look at this morning. Another one we'll look at next week. Two themes that I think continue to give us an understanding of and I hope deepen our appreciation for this great and glorious work of God's gospel. Two themes in verses 11 through 32. Number one, letter A, whatever it is, I guess. We can be hopeful in God's saving work. We can be hopeful in God's saving work. So, so Paul, though he's going to be talking about this future work of God's grace, he's also speaking about what God is doing now and today, and how this has ramifications for what God's going to do at a later date and time. So let's keep on following Paul's argument here, verse 11. Because he makes a really strange statement. It's not the first one in the book, it's not going to be the last one. But he says there at the second part of verse 11, But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What an odd statement. So so again, keep in mind the flow. Paul, Paul has said, all right, have they disobeyed so much that God has cast them out? No, God's not cast them out. However, a good number of them are hardened and, in fact, are stumbling All right, well, have they stumbled into such a degree that there's no return from it? Have they stumbled to the point of falling off the map completely, so to speak, of God's work of grace? Well, no. No, they haven't stumbled to that degree because because God is doing something intentional here. Their fall, not meaning their fall, you know, as if they're beyond hope, but their stumbling their, their obstinance, their hardening, this work that God has decided to do among them 
which is only a hardening of that which they had begun to harden themselves. If, if this morning's your first morning with us, and you wonder what does the language of hardening mean, see me after the service. All right, we've dealt with that, okay? But I'd be glad to deal with it again. Uh, give me a call, send me an email, whatever. I'd be glad to explain that in more detail if you haven't heard it, or if you still have questions. Paul's saying, look, this is, this, is not, this is not the final word on them. Instead, their fall, their stumbling, designed to, get this, provoke them to jealousy, has opened up the gospel to you Gentiles. Th- think about the, I don't know, the irony of God's grace at this point. In a sense, what God is saying, God Yes, it's a judging kind of work to harden the heart of the unbeliever. But he's saying the fact that God has done this to Israel means that the door was thrown open to the Gentiles. In other words, don't don't be bothered by what seems to be a strange work of God. This is appropriate. This is God's grace in action. God has done this so that you guys can be saved. Like I've said already, I think, in some of these sermons, unless I don't know something about you and your heritage, all right, pretty sure the label Gentile is one we all wear. It's one we, we all wear. In, in other words, this has direct application then to us. The reason why there is even a gospel for us to know is partly because of what this, this is talking about. Through their fall, provoking them to jealousy, God's made salvation available to the Gentiles. Now, notice, though, what he goes on to say in verse 12. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So, again, he goes on to explain this with a little more detail. So their fall, because they've stumbled, this means riches for the world. This means riches for the Gentiles, meaning the abundance and blessing of salvation is now available to you because of this work that God has done among the nation of Israel in general. So so he's encouraging them to look positively at what seems to be a negative idea. Look positively at the idea God has hardened Israel, that's allowed then the gospel to come to you, and because the gospel has come to you, that should provoke them to jealousy, which then should in turn bring some of them back into the fold, which then should result in a mighty revival across the planet. If you're allowed to say this about God, that's a pretty ingenious plan. I mean, it really is. To think that, that God, again, when we talk about this, this hardening, this is a work of grace. God, in essence, has said, all right, I will turn you over to your sin. Uh, yes, you've hardened your heart, and I will cooperate with that hardening, and as a result, we'll let you go. And because I let you go, I'm going to turn my attention then to a people who were not my people, but have now become a people. As Paul's going to illustrate in the next text, I'm going to graft this group of people into the vine, and they're going to bear fruit, and they're going to receive the blessing that otherwise you folks over here should be getting, because what I hope will, will happen is that you folks over here see the blessing of God in the gospel among the Gentiles, and you'll think, I want that. I, I want what they've got. 
This is all part of God's plan. Since they are rejecting and disobeying the gospel, being obstinate against the gospel, let's just turn them away altogether. Now you hear that and you think, Pastor, I've got to tell you, that sounds like an odd thing for God to do. In fact, you might even think it sounds a little inappropriate that God would provoke someone to jealousy. Let me give you a human analogy. It really doesn't sound all that crazy, especially then if you take the human analogy and make God then the perfect father. Let's imagine for a moment a mom and dad, they've invested blood, sweat, and tears into their child. Try to instill in them biblical values. They've, they've been a good husband and wife. They've been good mom and dad. They've provided. They've, they've tried to instruct in the truth and, and, and have tried to provide a home that was safe and encouraging at the same time, you know, provided discipline, the appropriate structure. In other words, they, they check all the boxes, so to speak. And yet that child rebels against it all. Rather than give in to what is the best way of living life, the, the life under the authority and goodness and grace of, of, of good, godly parents, begins in the teenage years, right? A little nip at this, a little shot at that, a little taking out of this brick and that principle, and suddenly then that, that teenager now growing into a young adult has dismantled the entirety of the house that mom and dad tried to build, yet at the same time, mom and dad still reaching out to this child, loving this child, hoping and praying this child would be drawn back into fellowship through their love and maybe their generosity, their ongoing care and support. And yet year after year, this child refuses, refuses to respond to the goodness of mom and dad. And then one day, mom and dad meet another young man. He's not part of their family. Could imagine a scenario in which it may happen. Perhaps it's a church. Perhaps he's a newcomer to the city and to the church. And for whatever reason, in whatever way that it happens, this this young man begins to develop a relationship with this mom and dad. This young man begins to draw from their wisdom and experience. This young man gives them time and attention. This man listens to their instruction. This young man begins having meals with them. And suddenly meals turn into they're having holidays together. And and, and suddenly the relationship has changed so much so that it's almost as if this mom and dad now have a new adopted child. And rather than continue to invest time and energy into one that is obstinately decided of his own free will and accord to rebel against mom and dad. That mom and dad give their time and attention to one who seems to care about these things. Is that a crazy analogy? Not so much. My guess is if I looked hard enough, I'd find examples of it. Or this very kind of thing has happened. And, and what, what is then the design of this? What would be the hope of this? I mean, what else are parents left to do? What, do, what should a mom and dad do at this point? But then say, all right, you've made your decision. You've made your choices. That, in some sense, is a way for the parent to 
encourage the hardening of the heart of that rebellious child. Okay, hands off. You're done. Having this one desire still in the back of their minds, perhaps, perhaps they will see, perhaps they will see in this relationship we have with this new individual what they were missing. Perhaps they will then be provoked to jealousy. Now, notice this is exactly what Paul is getting at. It's what he goes on to talk about in verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. What does he mean here? Jesus himself called Paul to be an apostle unto the Gentiles. We know on his second missionary journey while in Corinth, is when he had enough of the Jews constantly, constantly harassing him, rejecting him, lying about him, opposing him, and it's in Corinth that he wipes his hands and says, I'm done. I will now give my time and attention to what I was called to do, and that is minister unto the Gentiles. And I think what Paul means when he says, I magnify my ministry, he's saying, I'm giving all of my effort here then to investing in to these, this second group that God has called unto salvation. I magnify that. I, with great intensity, invest into these Gentiles to see this great work of God among them. Verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Again, this is the irony. This is how I'm describing it. The irony of God's grace in this text. And why I would argue this is is a, a hopeful work of God's saving grace. God has turned Israel over to her obstinate, rebellious, stubborn heart and turned unto the Gentiles for the very purpose of hoping that this act would result in contrition, and repentance. Let me ask you, what would the mom and dad do if that wayward son, upon seeing the love and adoration that he had so foolishly wasted because of his own stubborn will, what if that son comes back to mom and dad and says, in true contrition and conviction and repentance, I was a fool. I wasted all these years. I'm better off with you. What do you think that mom and dad would do? Again, if it was genuine, if it was the real thing, you think that mom and dad would say, tough luck, buddy boy. Should have thought about that a while ago. My guess is, most would be like that father of the prodigal son. Saw the child running up the road did something totally inappropriate for a man to do. And that was lift up his robe and run to meet his son. A son, by the way, when Jesus tells the story, had said, I know that, that even, the, even the animals on my father's farm have it better than I've got it now. This is a picture of what God is doing with Israel. It, it is a work of grace. God is reaching unto them by reaching out to the Gentiles, provoking them to jealousy. And this is what Paul says. So Paul says, if, if, 
So if I could just provoke them, if, if I could just in my zeal to minister to Gentiles, if this could in turn show the Jews what they are missing, what it means to rebel against this God who loved them and fed them and cared for them and grew them out of nothing, if I could just show them what they're missing, then maybe I could save some. Now jump down to verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this very mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness, now note this phrase, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Now notice that phrase, the blindness in part. Yes, they've been hardened, but what is the promise? This is a partial hardening. This is a hardening intended to elicit a response, to provoke jealousy, that they would then come back to the Father in contrition and repentance. By the way, in verse 26, when he says that all Israel would be saved, don't misunderstand that. He does not mean at that point that every single ethnic Jew will be saved. We've already talked about this issue. God never had any intent of that ever being a part of His plan. He's always worked based on the remnant being saved but all those who would be saved will be saved. That is, that is absolutely what he's saying. And he's saying that is prophesied. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness for Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Again, this, this is what Paul is getting at. Do not assume that this... This means anything beyond just what I've said. This is a mystery. It's hard to understand it in its fullness and all of its glory. It is a divine mystery, but yet nonetheless profound. God has turned the Jews away. Again, not all of them. Some are being saved. But He has turned them away that in the meantime, as He is, as he is bringing Gentiles to salvation, they may be provoked to jealousy. So again, it's, it's an ironic grace. Turn them over. But, but again, it's, it's, really not, it's really not that hard to understand. The, the other way we might say this, I'm going to do this to show you what, you what you are missing, right? I mean, I don't want you to start singing a song or get it in your head, but you don't know what you got till it's gone. Somebody can tell me afterwards where that comes from. All right. But then notice, notice this. Paul continues. Verse 15. Here's really what he's getting at. For if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So again, Paul is doing two things here. He's talking about this current work. What is God doing right now? He's hardening the hearts of, of Israel. That in turn is, is opening the floodgates of the gospel for the Gentiles, which we pray will then provoke them unto jealousy. So he's saying, imagine, imagine the work. What kind of work has God done through this plan thus far? So imagine what would happen then if you had this large response to the gospel from among the Jews. If their turning away resulted in this kind of work of the gospel among every tribe, tongue, and nation, can you imagine then what would happen 
if a large number of them believed? Think about it this way. Imagine tomorrow morning you wake up, breaking news. The head of the nation of Israel is on television, reading a prepared statement. I have now come to see that Jesus, the one of Nazareth, is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, that He died on the cross and rose from the dead, and that I have trusted by faith in Him, and now my sins have been forgiven, and now I know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, in whom is life now and forevermore. Do you think that would have any kind of effect on people? And not only that, then imagine they pan, right? They go from his, his speaking then to the Wailing Wall, where normally you see all of these Orthodox Jews in their garb, right? These men in their hats and their, their, their curly hair and the boxes with Deuteronomy on their forehead and on their arms. And they're rocking back and forth and they're repeating merely ritualized prayers, by the way. And, that's what, and they're rocking back and forth. That's what you're used to seeing, except now it's different. The garb is gone. The boxes are off. They're on their faces. You see in front of them is a New Testament. You see in their hands is now a cross. And somebody is interpreting for you the Hebrew they are now praying. And it seems that a large amount of these who otherwise were one time, the day before, Orthodox Jews, now you can hear them praying, Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Can you imagine what would happen if, if you've got the world's three most significant historic religions being Christianity, Judaism, and Islam? It's not to leave out the Buddhist. I know there are a big number, probably more of them than there are Jews. Nonetheless, historically, these are the big three, right? Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Can you imagine what would happen if now we go from three to two? Now, granted, there would probably be a rather violent and aggressive reaction among some, right? But I also believe this would usher in the single greatest harvest of souls ever. And I also believe it'll be the last. In other words, when we talk about this future work of grace... We talk about the fact we can be hopeful in God's saving work. We can be hopeful in what He is doing now. He is at work saving people, breaking their stubborn hard hearts, giving, giving them life and convincing them Christ crucified and resurrected. But there is this future work. I think Paul is prophesying it. I think it is part of the prophecy that's in the Old Testament. We find it again in various parts in the New Testament. Listen, church, this is what will happen in the future. In the future, the day will come. I don't know when it will be, but the day will come when something like what I just described to you will happen. Will all Israel be saved, meaning every Jew? No. In fact, I would argue there would still be a majority that are not going to believe. But we don't need a majority of them to believe if you even had thousands and thousands of them believe. Imagine then what would happen. And I think God's promise is, 
at the very end, before all is said and done, before all the events of the end times then unfold, there is going to be this mighty revival among the nation of Israel that will then open the floodgates unto every tribe, tongue, and nation. And listen, if tomorrow you hear stories of widespread revival among the nation of Israel, you better get your stuff ready. Because you're about to make your last move, and I'll tell you, church, it will then be your best life now. Worked him in. How about that, right? It's been a while. What a profound truth. And again, I think what Paul is doing here, because of this, because of of working us through what what is this profound reality of the gospel, I, I, I think it's designed to make sure we don't become too comfortable with it. I think we can assume we got this. We know this. Why are we still talking about the gospel? Because with an ever-deepening understanding, I think, becomes a deepening of appreciation. I think you and I as believers in, in Jesus Christ desperately need to have a deep and abiding appreciation for the work of the gospel. Not only to appreciate what that work means in our lives, which is something Paul will then get at next week, The truth is, you probably will wake up tomorrow morning and see the news and add a bit of cynicism to what you believe, right? Isn't that what happens? In other words, rather than thinking, yeah, there's going to be this great revival, you think, good night, how in the world is anybody from this culture ever going to get saved again? Anybody else think that? Worry about that? Anybody else see things and think, listen, if you've got states that now agree that it's okay to kill babies once they've been born, where else do we go, right? Where else do we go? You want to talk about reprehensible and, and, and nearly unforgivable. Can you imagine what's going on in the minds of people? Listen, church, okay, you ready for this? I understand that a woman can say what she will about her body, but if there is a baby, it's not just her body, all right? There are two of them, and that other baby's body matters just as much as the mother's, baby, as the mother's body. But the truth is, when I look at that and see that, and that's just one example, listen, there'll be another one just as bad a month from now, two months from now, whatever. The problem is we can look at that and get so cynical and frustrated. And this is when we should hear the words of Paul. Could it be, could it be that this work is designed for a much bigger purpose? Do we believe the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation? Yes. Yes. God is saving people. And so I'll finish with this. Taking a cue from what Paul has said, Paul prays that his very ministry, the magnification of his ministry, his zeal and passion for the gospel unto the Gentiles would provoke others to salvation. Do you live out the gospel in such a way? Is it so thick and evident in your life that there could be others who would look at it and say, I don't have that, but I wish I did? Would my life provoke anybody to jealousy for the sake of the gospel? It's a good question. Again, it's not Paul's primary point. I mean, he's talking specifically about work being done among Israel. And, but nonetheless, I think by application, I think it's a good one. Is my service to my king for the sake of his gospel being done in such a way that it could provoke others to think, I don't have a relationship with God like that. 
And I desperately need one. This morning as we have a time of invitation, you respond to God's word. Maybe that would include you coming here. Maybe you would want me to pray with you. Maybe as a believer you'd say, I've got to be honest, I, I don't know that my faith would provoke anybody to anything. Maybe you just want to come and kneel here and pray. I would encourage you to do so. Put this another way. Have you just become comfortable with the gospel? Has your understanding moved from a deepening appreciation to familiarity breeds contempt? Perhaps that's what you need. Maybe there's somebody here who doesn't know Christ as Savior. The good news is God is still saving people. And as we saw from the very first text, He's even saving people who are the hardest cases living in the hardest cultures. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, that's my appeal to you, that you would confess Jesus died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that you would ask God to save you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done, that you would place your faith in him and him alone. You can be saved today. Would you trust in this gospel? Let's stand together. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, this time will be open to you. If you'd like to talk with me more about what it means to trust Christ as Savior, I'll be here. We'd love an opportunity to speak with you about it. Father God, we do thank you for gathering us, and we thank you again for this word. Oh, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you for the goodness of your grace, for the glory of this gospel. We thank you, God, that you are a God who is still saving people. And Father, may our lives then reflect the glory of the gospel. May they see in us, hear from us, the hope of Christ crucified and resurrected. We pray, God, that then you, by your Spirit and through your Word, would do that work in us that needs to be done as you use it to continue this work of sanctifying us and making us like Christ, that we might be used for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.